This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 409. When we reframe the things that we're doing, when we look for that connection to how does this thing that is annoying me, how does it actually contribute to someone else or help me reach an important goal? It actually helps us to struggle less, which gives us more capacity to do the thing, even the annoying thing. Life is messy and full of challenges. That's part of being human. But the struggle, anxiety, and burnout that so often accompany these experiences are optional. And you can reduce them by embracing your awesome human. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth, because I believe that if you want to achieve true success in your business and in your life, that intentional and consistent reading is a must. Today's guest is someone whose second book releases today, the same day this episode is coming out, and someone who I've wanted to interview for several years, ever since her first book came out. I'm talking about Natalie Kogan, author of The Awesome Human Project. Break free from daily burnout, struggle less, and thrive more in work and life. I'm going to ask Natalie about how your brain is always on the lookout for symbolic and psychological dangers and the ways this manifests itself in your everyday life. We'll tackle the myth that self-criticism helps you to improve. I'll ask her to share about the five emotional fitness skills you should practice every day and plenty more. Whether you're part of a small company, a large company, a nonprofit, a for-profit, you know the importance of pouring into your people. And there's nothing I enjoy more than coming alongside you and helping you achieve that very goal. If your team could use help in the areas of mindset, productivity, or professional development more broadly, I hope you'll reach out. It's Jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. My spring schedule is already beginning to fill up, so don't wait. Jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Natalie Kogan is a leading expert in emotional fitness and leadership, a keynote speaker and CEO of Happier Inc. After years of chasing non-existent nirvana in the corporate world at companies like Microsoft and McKinsey, she suffered a debilitating burnout. Her journey to discover how to live with less struggle led her to create a science-backed method that she has taught to hundreds of thousands of people through books, virtual programs, and online courses. Her new book is called The Awesome Human Project. Break free from daily burnout, struggle less, and thrive more in work and life. Well, Natalie, it's my pleasure to officially welcome you to the Read to Lead podcast. I wanted to do this several years ago with the release of your first book, but I dropped the ball somewhere along the way. So thank you for your patience. Oh, well, you know, what is the, what's the saying? Good things come to those who wait. I think we're in for a treat then. I'm so grateful to be here. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, one of the things you talk about, of course, in your first book is the happier method. And I'm excited that you're always improving on what you're writing and the research that you're doing. And it's something that you've kind of updated, I think, for this book. Talk about, for context, the, the three core principles of this method you've developed. Yes. I love starting there. Um, you know, whenever I say to people, happier method, they go, what? Happier? <laughs> what do you mean? A method for happier? For happiness, there is one. So the, the three core kind of 
fundamental foundational um, principles. The first is, and I think this is so timely for the times we're in, is struggle in life is optional. So challenge is constant, right? We're always encountering challenges. We're all living through maybe the biggest challenge of our lives, but challenges are always coming and going in life and there's not much we can do about them. But struggle is optional. Struggle is something we can reduce. And uh, the reason for that, uh, just to sneak peek into some of the content, not just the principles, is that Struggle comes from the inside. It comes from the way that we approach a challenge, the way that we treat ourselves throughout this challenge, the way that um, we treat our emotions and our feelings um, throughout the challenge. And so that's um, the first core principle. The second is that emotional fitness is a skill you can improve. And emotional fitness is really core to happiness, to well-being. Um, and the way that I define emotional fitness is a skill of creating a more supportive relationship with yourself, your thoughts, your emotions, and other people. Because when we do that, we can struggle less through challenges, which means we have more capacity to mm. lead others, to positively impact others, to solve problems. And just like physical fitness, um, emotional fitness is a skill. If you want to improve your physical fitness, you probably get some workout in, you move mm. more, you eat healthier. If you want to improve your happiness or your emotional fitness, you practice skills like gratitude and acceptance and kindness, the skills that I talk about. And the final core principle, um, I think this is, I hope this is um, liberating to hear mm -hmm. is that small shifts create huge impact. You know, I think that, and I've absolutely been in this camp too. We often think, you know, to feel better, to feel happier, to have greater well-being, we have to drastically change our life. You know, we're living in this age of the great resignation where people are, you know, apparently everyone is quitting their job. You know, the reality is, you know, I always like to say this, I'm a working mom, I have a mortgage and a family. I can't just get up and, you know, go sit on the beach in Costa Rica. But it turns out that we don't need to make these drastic changes to our lives or who we are to experience the benefits of greater well-being, happiness, and emotional fitness. It's making these small internal shifts to how we treat our thoughts, to how we treat ourselves, to how we treat our emotions, to how we communicate with others that can have really lasting and meaningful impact on not just our well-being and emotional fitness, but on our ability to be great leaders and our ability to show up as forces of good in the world. So those are kind of the, the principles, the core foundations. Mm, I love that. I found that my own life, I've spent less time recently on goal setting and more time on just forming small habits that move mm. the needle a little bit each and every day, like you're saying. Uh, well, Natalie, let's dig into the to the neuroscience just a bit. The brain's job uh, essentially is to keep us from danger, as you say. And and, and that's still useful today, but arguably that was more useful for us a few hundred years ago. Uh, but the brain is still looking for symbolic or, or psychological dangers, right? How does this tend to manifest itself in life? Yeah, this is such an important point. You know, in my new book, I have a whole chapter uh, on kind of getting to know your brain and the mm -hmm. many neuroscience. Less. I'm a total neuroscience geek. I should <laughs> just say this. You know, my father is a PhD scientist. I grew up that yeah. way, but I just love understanding how the brain works, which allows us to then make the shift. So as you said, you know, your brain doesn't care about how happy you are, your emotional fitness. It just really doesn't care about that. It's kind of insensitive that way. <laughs> your brain only cares about keeping you safe from danger, which is a wonderful feature. I like being alive. It's a good experience. Um, and 
because your brain is constantly looking for either physical or psychological danger, by the way, an example of psychological danger is, you know, you have to have a difficult conversation with someone, right? That's mm. possible danger. You're applying for a new job or you're, you got a promotion. All of that signals danger because it's unknown, right? And so the brain starts to look for, you know, will I be rejected? Will people judge me? That's psychological danger. So because it's always on the lookout for danger, our brain has developed a couple of characteristics, which again, when we're facing danger are helpful, but otherwise cause unnecessary stress, struggle, mm. and um, actually get in our way of making good decisions. And a couple of those are, one is our negativity bias. So we all have what's called a negativity bias. We're all much more sensitive to anything that is wrong, could go wrong. We remember things that have gone wrong much more. And again, the reason for that is if you think about danger, right, like a pack of wolves is running at you, it has a lot of negative stimuli, right? The sound, the image. So our brain is always looking out for those stimuli. Now, again, it's very helpful to protect you from a pack of wolves, but the downside of that is our brain ignores anything that is good and familiar. Familiarity is really boring to the brain because familiar means safe. So your brain, you know, your brain is using 25% of your energy every day. 25% of the calories we take in go to the brain. It's using a lot. Mm. So it's always trying to become a little more efficient. One of the ways it does that is, well, anything that's familiar, I don't need to pay attention to. And so mm. we miss out on a lot of things that are good or joyful or just comforting if they are familiar. And the downside of that when it comes to our emotional fitness is we get a lot of strength and comfort and actual resilience from knowing that, sure, these are issues, these are challenges, but these things in my life are okay. Mm. And so the negativity bias makes it more challenging for us to do that. The other thing to know about the brain, because it is always looking out for danger, it absolutely hates uncertainty. Uncertainty is the hardest thing for the human brain to handle. You know, studies have shown that adults, we would rather experience physical pain then face uncertainty. Put another way, our brain would rather know that something very bad is going to happen than not know. Again, it makes sense if you think about the brain is just trying to protect you from danger. Mm. So it would rather come up with a really, you know, like when you have, again, a challenging situation that has uncertainty, your brain will come up with these worst case scenarios. The reason it's doing that is if it knows the way the worst case scenario, if it makes it up, it gets a sense of control. It can now say, okay, so that's the danger. That's what I'm going to prepare myself for. Again, the downside of that, it drains a lot of your energy and increases stress, increases anxiety and overwhelm. And actually it makes it more difficult for us to see things as they are. We're now caught up in that rumination on this will go wrong. This is going to be horrible. So those more, but those are two of the qualities, the negativity bias and the brain's tendency to make up worst case scenarios in the face of uncertainty that again, not just drain our energy and reduce our happiness and cause us stress, but actually get in the way of our being able to work through whatever challenge we're facing. That was, that was eye-opening to me, the preference for pain over uh, uncertainty. Um, and this leads me to my, my next question uh, that you talk about, I think, in the very next chapter of the book. It's chapter four, I believe, where you describe the process and walk us through this practice of editing our thoughts. What, mm. what does that look like in, in practice? Yes, I think, you know, it's hard to pick favorite practices. It's kind of like picking favorite <laughs> children. It's why I only have one daughter because I always tell her this. I just, you know, I, we, my husband and I say, you are our favorite daughter. Um, it's really hard. So saying that a practice is my favorite, you know, my whole method is based in practice, practice, practice. So mm. it's hard to pick favorites, but 
If I had to pick the one from this book, it would be edit your thoughts because it begins with this foundational shift that I think is a shift for most of us to recognize that just because the brain gives you a thought doesn't make it true. We just talked about the brain, right? And those are just a couple of things. Our brain is also influenced by patterns, by past experiences. And so it's really powerful to practice the skill, as I call it, of being the editor of your thoughts. So think of the thought that your brain gives you as the initial draft, right? And then your job, like a good editor, we all can imagine what a good editor is like, is to do two things. And these are the two questions that I offer to you in this practice. So again, the place to begin is awareness. So maybe you have a challenging situation going on right now. We're all facing endless uncertainty with the COVID and everything that's going on. So first become aware of what are the thoughts that are causing you to struggle, right? Maybe you're ruminating on that worst case scenario, maybe over-focusing on the negative. Mm. So awareness is always the first. And then ask these two questions about that thought. The first is, is this thought true, right? Any good editor, so this is my second book. I do a lot of writing. When I work with my editor, when I give her a draft, the first thing she looks at is, well, like the neuroscience facts I just said, mm. are these true? Do you have research to support them? So ask yourself, is this thought true? And for something to be true, you have to have facts to support it. So what I think other people think is not a fact, <laughs> right? So, oh, the people will judge me. I'm going to do this talk at work. No one's going to like it. Those are not facts. Those are stories. What are facts to support this thought? And mm. this is a very beautiful and humbling process. I have to tell you, I practice this all the time because very often when I ask myself, well, is this thought true? Very little is true. And a lot of it is this negative story that my mm. brain has made up. So is this thought true? The second is, and this perhaps is even a more important question, is this thought helpful? So by that, what I mean is, does going along with this thought, focusing your energy and attention on it, does it actually help you with whatever situation you're dealing with, right? So um, again, I use this example. I do a lot of work with leaders and uh, one of the leaders in my leadership group that I lead is working on her public speaking. And so she's got a huge, huge presentation with the board, a lot of pressure. And so she was sharing with me that she's just like focused on all the things that could go wrong. You know, she's going to stumble, they're going to judge her, et cetera. And so I said, is it helpful to you to keep focusing on that? Well, the answer is never yes, because <laughs> the reality of our brain is we can only focus our attention on so many things at the same time. And when we're focused on, well, this is going to go wrong, or these people won't like me, or this won't work out, it actually drains our energy. It reduces our focus, our ability to be at our best. And so is this thought true and is this thought helpful are two really simple but really powerful questions to help you edit your thoughts and shift from these thoughts that are very influenced by your brain's fear of uncertainty and the negativity bias into thoughts that actually help you work through whatever the challenge or the situation that you're facing. Related to this, I love the example from the book, the person who was recently hired to do a job and she was concerned that uh, she wasn't liked, she wasn't doing the job well. And you asked her questions like, well, haven't you been promoted recently? Haven't you been given this great feedback? And the answers were yes and yes and yes. And, and you basically posed the question, well, are those people who hired you stupid? <laughs> I mean, obviously, the answer to that question is, well, well, no. And when we admit that, then all that other stuff just kind of falls by the wayside, doesn't it? 
Exactly. And, you know, that was, um, it's a piece in the book about dealing with imposter syndrome, right? Mm -hmm. This feeling that many of us have that we're not as good as other people think we are, and they're going to find out eventually, which is something I've dealt with, most of us deal with. And so we were talking about this, and it was actually a really enlightening moment for me, because I hadn't thought about it that way at at the time. But I kept asking her as he said these questions. She's like, no, I've been promoted recently. I got really good feedback. And then I was like, so hold on. So one of the two things has to be true. Either everyone who's been saying all these wonderful things about you and giving you positive feedback, either they're all really stupid <laughs> or you are as good as you are. And she had this moment and she started laughing. She was like, she said, you know, I've read every book on imposter syndrome and this just did it. <laughs> and I think there's, um, you know, I love that you brought up that example because there's a bit of, um, you know, you and I are laughing and I want to encourage everyone listening to kind of bring a little bit of that lightness when we consider our thoughts, because I like to think of our brain as a small child. And I talk about that in the book, right? You know, we've all like either have small children or have observed them, right? A small child, you know, one minute they're playing with this toy and the other minute they're crying and then they're laughing and then they're upset and they were just upset, but now they're happy, right? They're kind of all over the place. (laughs) Well, be the adult in the room, right? You don't go everywhere where the little child goes. You kind of sometimes laugh at them. Yeah, I never forget my daughter when she was about five, maybe four or five, she came in, I was in the kitchen. She was hysterical. Absolutely. I mean, you would think I thought she was hurt. And mm. I was like, oh, I got on the floor. I was like, what's going on? She's like, my lace broke on my sneaker, <laughs> you know? And so that's your brain, right? Your brain is going, oh my God, the world is over. The lace broke on your sneaker. So, mm. you know, you can laugh inside and have a little lightness. And I always say, approach your brain like a grandparent. The grandparent is kind and compassionate and understanding. And you don't tell your brain, wow, you're stupid. You, you, your brain is part of you, but you sort of like a grandparent. You take a moment, you get on the floor with a small child and you're like, well, listen, let's talk about it. Is this really the worst thing in the world? Okay, let's talk it through. And so um, that example with imposter syndrome is similar. I think that's It'd be beautiful if we could bring that approach into how we treat our brain versus mm. everything our brain says is kind of the postulate, the truth versus, well, it's a small child who is afraid a lot. Let me approach it like a mm. wise grandparent. And you're getting into this thing you call self-compassion, I think, mm. and uh, address the, this myth that you see a lot that practicing self-compassion curbs our motivation mm. to improve, that it's somehow our self-criticism that helps us get better. It's actually the other way around, isn't it? It is the other way around. And I just want to say before I answer this, I, you know, I, everything I teach and share in my book and in my talks and everything is, comes from my personal lens. So I just want to like say to you and everyone listening, I'm 46 years old. I just turned 46 a couple of days ago. I spent most of my life firmly believing that endless harsh criticism is the only way that I would improve and grow. You know, I mm-hmm. grew up in Russia. It was kind of the only way. So I just want to say, it's not like I'm coming from a mountaintop where I just had this eureka. I spent my life doing that. <laughs> but, you know, let's start with the research. There are zero studies, not one, not two, not ten, zero studies that show that harsh self-criticism helps you improve. Mm. It reduces motivation. It um, dramatically uh, damages your self-image, which then is a vicious cycle. It reduces motivation, damages your self-image. It takes away your ability to be at your best because you're spending all that energy telling yourself how horrible you are. (laughs) Um, And, you know, people like to argue with me on this and I love those arguments. You know, people often raise their hand and say, no, 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 you're wrong. 
I go to the gym because I constantly tell myself how much I hate my body. And I'm like, that's not why you go to the gym. Mm. You go to the gym because you like the feeling of doing something good for yourself, or you like the way your body feels afterwards or looks afterwards. So that's, so it's a mistake to connect those two. Mm. So let's talk about self-compassion now that we've got the research out of the way. I think one of the reasons that I and so many other people kind of are allergic to self-compassion or they think it's going to reduce their ability to improve is just a misunderstanding of what it means. I used to think that self-compassion is like saying, I am wonderful exactly how I am and nothing is wrong with me and just sitting back and crossing Mm. my arms. I just thought it was um, like, it would turn me into a lazy slaw. It was like (laughs) getting myself off the hook, right? Well, that's just, that's not what self-compassion means. Self-compassion is a skill of um, treating yourself like you would a friend. And what I mean by that is it means you acknowledge that you are a human being which means you cannot always do everything perfectly because we know no one can in our lives, right? And most importantly, self-compassion is about treating yourself in a way that reduces struggle and suffering. Because again, we talked about this, when you struggle less, you have more energy, more capacity to actually do the thing that you want to get better at. You know, there's a lot of studies, uh, one in particular I love, it came out of Germany a couple of years ago, and it showed that when students took a difficult test and they didn't do well or they failed, the students who um, reacted with self-compassion. So again, Mm. it's not that they pretended they didn't do well. They acknowledged it, right? Self-compassion requires courage. So you say, wow, I really screwed that up. I didn't do well, but they treated themselves with compassion. So instead of pummeling themselves with harsh words, they encouraged themselves like they would a friend to do better. The students who reacted with self-compassion were twice as likely to work hard and do much better on the next test than students who focused on improving their self-esteem. So kind of pumping themselves up with like, no, I'm awesome. I'm amazing. (laughs) Or students who practice harsh criticism. And so, you know, it's interesting when I do workshops on this, I ask people, so let's say a friend makes a mistake. How do you react? Well, if you're a good friend, you acknowledge, you tell them, wow, yeah, that wasn't ideal. You know, (laughs) you screwed that up. And then what do you do? Do you sit there and tell them, you know what? And I think this mistake means you're an incompetent leader and you're the worst human being and you're just really hard. We would never say this to our friends or our colleagues. Mm. And yet that's often what we tell ourselves. And so that's why I talk about self-compassion. We all know how to practice it already. We do it with friends, with colleagues, with people in our lives. And it's just turning that lens towards ourselves for all the achievers and high performers. And I am one of them. Understanding the research and understanding what it really means is really powerful because I can tell you in the... I don't know, let's call it four or five years that I've been consistently practicing self-compassion. I feel I have improved and grown more than I had in the 40 previous years of Mm. beating myself up every day. Wow. That's saying a lot. One of my favorite chapters, Natalie, is the one uh, that describes this idea of an emotional whiteboard. Mm. Uh, Describe what that is and why it's important to understand how others catch your your feelings, Mm. as you say. Yes. So I I love, I kind of dawned on me one day, the visual, I'm very visual person. um, So it it helps to have a visual. So we are all wearing, you can all listening to me, you can look down right now, you are wearing, there's a whiteboard that's in front of you. And that's your emotional whiteboard. How you feel in this moment is written on it. And other people can sense it. And for those of you who just want, no, 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 I have a great poker face. 
Let me tell you, you don't. I thought this for most of my life. I thought I could just pretend to my teams, to my colleagues, to people in my life. I could just put on a fake smile. One of the things we are best at as human beings is sensing each other's emotions for the same reason that we just talked about. It helps us to identify danger, right? If I see you eating a mushroom that and your face kind of contorts, that's a signal to my brain that you're eating something possibly dangerous. Or an olive in the case of your daughter. <laughs> exactly. As I write in the book, when you know, my daughter watched me eat an olive and she was and I was smiling. I love olives. And she grabbed one and she was like, What is this horrible, horrible nightmare? <laughs> She's 17. We still have made no progress on the olives, but I'm not giving up. I just want everyone to know. And so we're all really good at not just sensing each other's feelings, but also catching them. So we all mm. have what are called mirror neurons. So when I look at you and you smile the mirror neurons in my brain smile too. So I'm actually encouraged to smile. We catch each other's emotions. And here's why this is so important, especially in the context of work. You know, I spent 20 years in great companies like McKinsey and Microsoft and building startups. And I learned about everything except my emotions. No one ever talked to me about the importance of emotions. And so I just pretended that they didn't exist. But the thing is, our emotions affect everything we do, and they affect everyone around us. And what I encourage people to do in the book, and I do this a lot with my work with leaders and companies, is there are two steps. First is around emotional awareness, becoming aware. What is on my emotional whiteboard today? Checking in with yourself, just like you check in with colleagues and friends. You say, hey, how are you doing? Do that with yourself. Do that before you start your workday. Do that first thing in the morning and just check in and say, how am I feeling? Emotionally, mentally, physically, what's on my emotional whiteboard? And secondly, ask yourself, what would be helpful for me to communicate about my emotional whiteboard to the people that I'm interacting with, right? And this isn't about you know opening your heart and telling a big story about with all the personal details. I'm not asking you to do that. That's mm. for your best friend. But giving context to what people might be sensing. So you know, in the book, I describe I call it the tense boss scenario. We've all been it in in it, right? So I think we can all relate. You go into a meeting with your boss. Maybe it's a virtual meeting, and She's usually pretty effusive and warm. And this time she's kind of tense and not smiling. What's the first thought that you have? Uh Uh-oh, what did I do? I screwed something up. She's mad at me. Why is she upset? Oh, she's really upset. And we start spinning that and it causes us stress and struggle and anxiety. And you know, then I take the scenario all the way through and it turns out that the boss had a really tough meeting before yours. And so how much better would it be if... She starts that meeting by saying, hey, listen, Natalie, I just want to tell you, I had a really tough meeting before this one. So I'm a little off, but that's it. Mm. Ah, It's nothing to do with me. I don't have to waste my energy on that struggle. I'm even encouraged to say like, hey, is there anything I can do to help? Mm. And so we can, it's such an act of service and of kindness to share context around our whiteboards with others because it removes so much struggle and anxiety and it helps us create more genuine, authentic, and connected relationships. Mm, Well said. Well, I want to have you unpack what you walk us through in, I think it's part three of the book, the emotional fitness skills in just a moment and summarize those as best you can. But but first address the need to commit to practicing these skills Mm. and why that's so important. 
You know, emotional fitness is, um, and it took me a while to figure out like this is the the definition or this is the concept, but it's just, it's kind of like physical fitness, right? So if you mm. think about it, if you want to improve your physical fitness, you know, again, we talked about you maybe right. do get some movement into your day, get some exercise, lift some weights, eat healthier. When you stop doing those things, your physical fitness decreases. When you do those mm. things, it increases. So it's a practice. And so the same way that we do those things to practice improving our physical fitness, there are skills that we need to practice consistently to improve our emotional fitness. There's no goal. There's no, well, you've done 10 things. You know, it's like, I, I get irked those articles. You know, we often read five mm. things you can do right now to be happy for the rest of your life. I, you know, I've studied this for a long time. There are no those things. They're just things you practice every day. And so that's where the commitment to practice comes in. And it's actually one of the qualities of what I call awesome humans. Um, and so the emotional fitness skills that I take you on this five-week challenge where you focus on one skill per week, because it's much easier for the brain to have one thing to focus on, mm. gives our brain a sense of progress, and then it's more likely to do other things. The five skills are acceptance, gratitude, self-care, intentional kindness, and the bigger why. And I can go in and unpack those a little bit. But the idea is these are the five core skills that when you practice them consistently, and especially during times that are challenging, it helps you struggle less. It helps you have a more clear picture of reality so that you can make the best decisions for how to move forward. Um, and it helps you live and do your work with more joy and meaning and less overwhelm, which I think is a really wonderful goal. <laughs> well, in the interest of time, I know our time is short. Let me have you maybe unpack your why, if, mm. if you would. Yeah, your bigger why. So your the skill of the bigger why is the skill of connecting to your sense of purpose by connecting what you do every day in work, at work and outside of work to how it helps other people, how it contributes to someone else. How does it help you reach a meaningful goal? And that's where we find meaning. You know, I think many of us think of meaning as something that's somewhere out there and we have to go and find it, right? You know, the book, The Alchemist, the amazing book by Paolo Coelho mm. is a favorite of many. It's a favorite of mine, right? Mm. Where the boy goes on a pilgrimage to find his sense of purpose. Well, I argue that your sense of purpose is actually already right here. It is in your life as it is. The, the way to connect to it is to get really into the habit of connecting things that you're already doing, the presentation for work, shopping for groceries for your family, calling yeah. a colleague, to how does it help others? How does it contribute to something bigger than myself? And one of the practices I share that I'd love to share with everyone is I call it a to-do list makeover. And mm. here's how it is. Very simple. So look at your to-do list and pick a couple to-dos. The more annoying, the better. You know, those to-dos that we just sort of rewrite on our to-do list <laughs> right. week after. All right. Those are great <laughs> candidates. And ask yourself, who does this help? And actually answer the question. Mm. And so, you know, maybe one of your to do's is finish a presentation or pay the bills or finish this report. Ask yourself, who does it help? Does it help a colleague, someone in your life, your team, your customers? Does it help your community? Mm. And when you answer that question, it gives you that sense of purpose. So instead of it just being an annoying thing I have to do, it becomes I'm doing this thing because it helps this person, or I'm doing this thing because it helps me be, become a better writer, a better podcaster, a better artist. And when we have 
that sense of purpose, it increases our motivation. It actually helps us manage our stress. It doesn't eliminate stress. I don't have a magic wand, (laughs) but having a sense of purpose helps us to manage stress better because uh, our brain has context and purpose for the stress. So it's not, I'm really stressed. It's I'm really stressed as I'm working towards this thing that is meaningful and I actually feel the impact of the stress less and it actually helps you to get more stuff done. And so I share this practice. It's one I do all the time of a to-do list makeover. Mm. You're essentially reframing your to-dos to help you connect with how they're part of your meaning and purpose. And it gives you motivation. You feel more energy because ultimately we are all pro-social beings, which means Mm. that we feel motivated by being able to contribute to others. And so when we reframe the things that we're doing, when we look for that connection to how does this thing that is annoying me, how does it actually contribute to someone else or help me reach an important goal? It actually helps us to struggle less, which gives us more capacity to do the thing, even the annoying thing. That reframe is so powerful. I'm so glad that you shared that. Well, Natalie, I've got a couple of questions I want to ask you, not directly related to your book. Before that, anything else from the book you want to make sure we walk away with? No, I well, I think you've, I'm really grateful for such thoughtful questions. I think the one thing that I, I do want to um, share, given that um, this is a read to lead podcast, mm-hmm. is you know, there's a chapter on leadership. And I didn't imagine at the outset that one of the core qualities of awesome humans would be leadership. But the reason I bring that up is, you know, the way that I define a leader, it has nothing to do with how many people report to you, what your title is. None of that makes you a leader. You are a leader if you positively impact other people's capacity to thrive. Mm. So you can be a leader in your family, in your friend group, in your soccer team, in your church group, in your reading club, in your team at work. And the one huge kind of learning moment for me, and this is what I share in the book, is this shift from being a martyr leader for most of my career, because I kind of interpreted servant leadership, which is a really popular concept. I interpreted Mm. this idea of leaders eat last, which is a concept from the military, right? Mm -hmm. To mean I come last, my emotional needs come last, my physical needs come last. So I'm a martyr and I just need to focus on my team. And it's one of the things that led to my burnout. Um, I can honestly say it diminished my capacity to lead well, and it really hurt my team. And so for all the leaders who are listening, my ask is that you recognize, we just talked about how we catch emotions as human beings. We just talked about emotional fitness, that you can't give what you don't have, that it's a myth to think that you can be a present, attentive, thoughtful, clear leader if you are not taking care of your emotional fitness. It's a lie I told myself for 20 years. Mm. And it's, you know, uh, I work with leaders so much. And when I talk about these things, they often share, well, this feels selfish to like work on myself so much, (laughs) but we are all connected, right? Mm. Human emotions are connected. We impact people, not just with our actions, but with with our emotions, with our energy. And so to be a great leader, to positively impact other people's capacity to thrive, it is non-negotiable that you practice your emotional fitness skills, that you create a more supportive relationship with yourself mm. first. That idea of you can't give what you don't have, I would argue too, is at the core of these, these five personal habits that I practice, that I 
uh, have begun asking a lot of my guests about uh, the way they go is this idea of dancing with discomfort and leaning into things that make you uncomfortable on a, day, on a daily basis, uh, reading on a regular basis, ritualizing that practice, mm. uh, looking at your task, your to-dos, what's on your schedule through the lens of energy and you know, increasing the amount of time you spend in areas that give you energy and lessening the, uh, the amount of time you spend in areas that, that take it away. Mm-hmm. Um, assembling your advisors is another, and that means just spending time on a regular basis with people who challenge you, who push you. And then the last one is, is mastering your mornings and developing mm-hmm. a morning routine. Of those five, which of those five would you say is one that resonates with you? Is there one that stands out as one that you practice or one that, that you make sure you do? Yeah. um, Being intentional about mornings Mm -hmm. is something that's sacred for me. Um, It always has been, but I have to tell you, it was about two months ago that I got kind of a, I recommitted to Mm. my morning being an intentional kind of sacred time. I was reading in my journal the other day and I wrote, wow, I've fallen in love with my mornings again. So that was good to read. (laughs) Um, I Mornings are my most creative time. And in addition to being an author and a speaker, I'm also an artist. Actually, for everyone listening, my art is on the cover of the Awesome Human Project, my book. That's actually my art. So I am at my best during the day. If I can take a couple hours in the morning to just be. And what I mean by that is not talk. Of course, I sometimes have to adjust that, right? I may have a talk or a podcast. That's fine. But if I, you know, most mornings having a couple hours where I'm not talking and I kind of do have this routine. So I start, I'll just share it. So I Mm. start every morning, I drink a glass of warm water with lemon. And then I've recently been doing, we've been doing other green shakes with uh, my family or Mm. there's this company, Athletic Greens. I'm not connected to them in any way, but it's a really awesome kind of way to get your greens in and a powder. And then I have, I don't know, 15 to 20 minutes of, I either do some Qigong or some yoga or some stretching. And then I go for a five mile walk. And yes, Mm. I live outside of Boston. And yes, I hate the winter. (laughs) And yes, today it was brutal. In the winter, Mm. it's just kind of discipline. Otherwise, I really enjoy, I listen to books as I walk, I listen to fiction. Mm. And then I come back and I have kind of a half hour of maybe I'll read something. It's never work related. Um, Maybe I'll read something. Maybe I'll I'll write in my journal. Maybe I'll just sit around in my corner chair and just be. And mm. I can't do this every morning because it's two hours. But when I do, I truly feel like I quadruple my capacity, not mm. just to do stuff, but the kind of being that I am, the light that I bring to others, the mm. presence. And so I think it is it's something that I do try to keep sacred. I talk about this a lot. My team knows it. Again, sometimes we have to break it. Sometimes mm-hmm. I have to fly or I have to do a talk and that's fine. But my team knows that if at all possible, until 10 o'clock, I'm sort of, I'm there, but I'm not online. And I love what you illustrated there with your morning routine and something that it took me some time to learn. I used to think that uh, my morning routine had to have the same 13 things happening every morning and very rigid. And I finally learned over time that it needed some flexibility. And maybe I've got 13 things from which to choose, but today might need five of those things. And which of those things 
is that today? And that sounds very similar to the way you practice. Yeah. And I, you know, and for myself and for, you know, I teach self-care as a skill, right? It's one of the Mm. um, five skills. And one of the things I always encourage people is flexibility, you know, be compassionate and flexible with yourself. We're not machines. Every day is not the same. We feel differently every day. And I think that, you know, I want to mention this, uh, one of the leaders I've been working with, you know, we were doing a, a session with his team and, he mentioned, we, I talked about this, that sometimes we, you know, you've been doing the same thing for self-care and maybe it's not fueling you anymore. Be aware of that. Mm. He started laughing. He said, you know, I've been taking a yoga class for a year, three times a week. Cause I was like, you know, this is my self-care. And he's like, and I just realized I just don't find it fueling anymore. And I've just mm. stuck with it because I thought I'd be failing at self-care if I changed it. But self-care is not about, you know, doing the same thing so often. It's about mm-hmm. fueling your emotional, mental, or physical energy. Mm-hmm. And that as the j- days change, our requirements change, right? There are some yeah. days where I really feel like kind of reading something you know, philosophical or spiritual or mm. historical. There are days where I really want to listen to crime fiction on my walk because I love <laughs> thrillers. That's like, right. And mm. there are days when I don't want to do any of that. And I just want to mm. paint or there are days where instead of, you know, yoga, I just want to lie on the floor for 10 minutes and just Zen out. And I mm. think it's, you know, one of the core things that I encourage people to do in the book is really become intentional about creating a supportive relationship with yourself. Mm. And Part of that relationship is awareness of what is it that you need today. I wish my dogs would just let me lay on the floor for 10 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, last question, Natalie, over the course of your career, uh, what have been or what is one of or some of the most impactful books that you've read? Mm, So next to me, this is what I call my sacred bookshelf. Mm. My sacred books are on it. I think the book that I would highlight is The Surrender Experiment by Michael Singer. Mm. Um, So it's a book I probably recommend the most. Michael Singer is um, an incredible teacher, kind of, I don't know, just the wisest human. And it's not a business book. I actually tend to not read a lot of career business books, but The Surrender Experiment is an incredible book. It's a story of his journey of going from a very promising economics PhD student to wanting to create a better relationship with Mm. the chatter in his head and what happened when he went on a journey to do that and how the surrender to life became the opposite of what he always thought. So it's not about just doing nothing of how it's engaging with life as it is and how it led him to found a billion dollar company and create a, other incredible things. It's, um, it's been personally a hugely influential book. And I, um, I think when I go to Amazon, that's probably the one thing that I've sent to more people to more mm. addresses than anything else, including my own books. Mm, wow. That's not one that I've read. So I've got one to add to my list for You're sure. You're in for a treat. Awesome. Well, let's all commend Natalie and pat her on the back for editing her thoughts and getting <laughs> past the struggle of putting her artwork in and on her book. Uh, the book <laughs> is called The Awesome Human Project. Break free from daily burnout, struggle less and thrive more in work and life. Uh, Natalie, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to be with us today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for such insightful and thoughtful and caring questions. It's uh, It helps me share for my best self. And I'm so grateful to be able to share with you and your listeners. 
I hope you consider picking up Natalie's book. And if you do, consider who else might benefit from it. I've done that. In fact, I have a copy of it in my hands right now that I'm sending to a family member who I think could really get a lot out of Natalie's book. Maybe that's the case for you, too. For a summary of today's episode and links to resources that Natalie talked about, including her book, readtoleadpodcast.com slash 409 is the place to go. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 409 for episode 409. And remember, if I can come alongside your team and help either virtually or in person with professional development training for your company, Jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com is the way to reach me. That's Jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. Next week, I welcome one of my favorite authors, a guy who's been on the show twice before. We'll be talking with Dan Rome about his new book, The Pop-Up Pitch, the two-hour creative sprint to the most persuasive presentation of your life. I loved this book, and I think you will too. That's next time on the Read to Lead podcast. That does it for this week. I hope to see you next time. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read.